Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please do open your Bibles now to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and we are officially into a section now in which Luke is... Uh, basically going to be recording for us a composite of Jesus' healing ministry. Uh, This is one of those sections that's going to develop for us in some pretty provocative ways um, the compassion of Jesus for the sinner. It shows us his heart, it shows us his character, his desire to show mercy, and yet as we're going to find out, the central point of this section is to reveal that Jesus is Lord that he is without question the fullness of God. And so this is yet another important section of the gospel. They're all important, of course, because it's all the word of God, but this is an important section because Luke is now going to focus on Jesus' divine identity, uh, that he is not merely a man, he is not merely a prophet, uh, he is not merely a great teacher or worker of miracles, but rather he is the fullness of God which is exactly what Luke wants us to understand. That is his goal in penning this gospel. We know that from chapter one, but he wants us to once again be confronted with the question of, so who do you understand this man to be? Who do you understand Jesus to be? And so just by way of introduction, let me read for you the passage that we're gonna be in this morning, which is verses 11 through 17. And this is just a wonderful account It is one that is, by the way, unique to the gospel of Luke. You will find this in no other gospel. You'll find it in no other place in the New Testament. Um, And so please do follow along as I read this very special but unique record of Luke. He writes starting in verse 11 of chapter 7. And soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd, And as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and he was, she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in the surrounding district. Well, let me introduce here with a quote that I have read to you before. This comes from an unknown author. He writes, there is a preacher of the old school and he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world is his parish and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion. And the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. His name death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his texts. And someday, every one of you will be his sermon. If you have been at our church any length of time, then you know that we talk often about the fact that you and I face constantly in our lives three great enemies. 
The scriptures are clear that all of us have enemies. They are the same three enemies. And they confront us every single day, whether you believe in them or not. They are ever-present realities within your life and mine. You experience their effects. You experience the pain that they bring. And you are saddened by their assaults. And they are those great enemies called sin, Satan, and death. All three are inescapable. All three are merciless. They affect every single person who has ever been born, and you and I are in the consistent state of being hunted by these foes. And yet of those three enemies, it has been my personal experience that the one that most people fear the most is death. And the reason for that, I think, is because death is that enemy which is utterly undeniable but it is also impossible for you to beat. You can choose to ignore the reality of Satan. You can call sin by a different name and simply rationalize it as something else. But the one thing that you cannot deny is death. In fact, the death rate is 100%. That is to say that everybody always dies. And there is no way for you to beat that statistic. It is holistic. It is comprehensive. It does not discriminate by age or race or creed. And so there is no person who lives outside the scope of that statistic. No matter how much you exercise, no matter how much spinach you eat, no matter how many vitamins you swallow, no matter how much you care for your health or your body or your mind, eventually a day is coming in which your soul will be required of you. And if there is one thing that we don't like to think about, it is death. But the reality is that we are all hurling toward that day and it is coming far sooner than any of us care to think about. But the conclusion of your life and mine is that a day is coming, as Solomon writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, that your soul will return to its maker. And you will stand before your creator and give an account. You will give an account for your life and how you spent these very fleeting, quick days on this earth. And all that will matter in that moment is if you spent your life for Christ or if you spent your life for sin and self. That is the critical eternal issue. But regardless, whether you are safe in Christ or you reject him and will be found condemned, eternally speaking, neither one of those nullify the fact that death is still coming for you. In fact, you will die and you will be forgotten. Let me try and sufficiently depress you this morning. The reality of life is that once you die, none of your pursuits will have mattered. None of your accomplishments will have mattered. In fact, the day after you breathe your last breath, the sun will still rise. The birds will still chirp. And this world will keep spinning along just as it did before you even were. Most of creation will not know you're dead. And frankly, most of creation will not care. In the grand scheme of eternity, your dreams and desires will not have mattered. Your laughter will not have mattered. Your sadness will not have mattered. Your experiences and accomplishments and memories all will die with you. Everything you achieved will matter no more. Everything you created will eventually fade. All pictures of you will disappear. And the reality is that your great-grandchildren likely won't even know your name. And all your desires and all your goals and all your efforts and all of your accomplishments that were wrought about through tremendous stress, anxiety, hardship, dreams, planning, and efforts 
will not matter. Your life will be over and the places which you inhabited will remember you no more. And it is right, hear this, it is right for you to hate that. It is proper to despise death and the effects of death. It is right for you to grieve when you lose a loved one or mourn over the news that you've just received cancer. It is right for you to be saddened when you see people in anguish over the existence and effects of both sickness and death. And because the truth of this creation is that things were never supposed to be this way. Death was not original to God's design. Death was not part of his creation when he declared in Genesis chapter one that everything is very good. But when sin entered the world and Adam and Eve disobeyed, what sin brought forth was death. That was God's promise. That was his judgment and curse in response to rebellion against his word. And so when you look around and you grieve over the fallen nature of this world, what you see every single day are the effects of that original sin and the effects of your own sin. And because all of us have been born into sin, Sin is what we are. Sin is not merely what we do, but sin is our essence. And beyond even that, the truth is that we also dwell within a realm of sin. And so we are sinful sinners who live within a sinful order. And so the effects of sin are a constant foe. Sin is why you get rust on your car. Sin is why you get mosquito bites. But sin is also why nothing ever works out and why everything that we pursue never delivers as promised. Sin is why grandmas and grandpas die, but it is also why babies die. Sin is why the thought or the idea of something is always far better than the reality of that something. In fact, you and I know that when our hand finally lays hold of that one thing that we thought would finally satisfy, we once again discover that it too has failed. Perhaps it's a career, perhaps it's a relationship. Perhaps it's a romantic dream of success and happiness, but whatever it is, it always fails to provide a lasting contentment. And the older that you are, the more that you know this. If you're a person in here this morning that thinks it's just not that bad, chances are you're probably younger. In fact, it's why Tom Brady, for example, after winning his fifth Super Bowl ring, I think he's on seven now, but at the height of his celebrity success, he said in a very famous interview when asked as to what could possibly be next for him, he responded with those words that there has got to be more to life than this. No matter what he had or what he achieved, it did not fulfill money, Super Bowls, supermodels. All of it failed him and all of it is still failing him. It is why John D. Rockefeller, the famous oil baron, whose relative wealth in our day would be somewhere near the ballpark of $213 billion dollars, when asked how much more money would be enough, how much more would make you happy or satisfy you, his infamous response was just a little bit more. And so we dwell within this realm in which nothing ultimately satisfies. Money, sex, relationships, pleasure, status, accomplishments, nothing ever fulfills and nothing completes you. And yet we spend our lives chasing happiness like mad, do we not? 
And yet after a lifetime of that anxious pursuit and a lifetime of being consumed by the chase and thinking that there has got to be something out there which will finally satisfy that which is insatiable within us, the only and inevitable conclusion of that fleeting pursuit is always death. Death is that great leveler for which no matter who you are or what you've achieved makes all men equal. And so make no mistake, but your end is death. Welcome to church. And it is right now hunting you as you sit in your pew. And the fact is, all things being equal, I will do most of your funerals. Or you will do mine because youth is no guarantee of old age. And since we got here this morning, you are now about 30 minutes closer to that inevitable blow. You had more time in this earth when you woke up this morning than you have right now. And death is ugly. The majority of society has never truly seen its horror. Hollywood seeks to neutralize it and soften its ugliness. We seek to pretty it up in our own lives by dressing up our loved ones in nice clothes and painting them up with makeup and making it appear as if they're merely sleeping. But death is foul. Death is a harsh master. And beloved, it is your enemy. And so there is a very good reason for you to hate it. It is right for you to despise it. It is right for you to mourn the effects of it in your life. And there is a very good reason in your natural state to fear it. It has power. It has authority over you. You cannot win and you cannot beat it. And so the beauty of this passage this morning is that for the first time in the Gospel of Luke, we are introduced to the lordship of Jesus Christ over even this. We see that he is truly that sovereign God who is not subject to this enemy's authority and it's such a wonderful account because as we're going to see it reveals not merely the lordship of Christ over this enemy of death, but we also see the compassion of Jesus. We see his sympathy as that compelling motive for why he has dealt with this enemy of ours. We see his compassion for his own dying, broken creation. And so if I have been able to sufficiently depress you, what we're going to see here this morning is that in his mercy, Jesus has come, but to reverse this. You and I are sinners, and the penalty of that sin is death. It is our rightful end. It is our righteous consequence. But it is not what was supposed to be. It is not how... God created this world, and it is not what he desired for this creation. And so we see here this morning, Jesus Christ entered into a very sad and broken circumstance and declare through his words and actions something tremendously important. And so this is a passage that is all about Jesus Christ. It's a passage revealing who he is, what he has come to accomplish, why he's come to accomplish it. And why, that is some very good news for both you and me. And so look with me, if you would, to verse 11. And we've got three points here this morning. Number one, we're going to see the setting, verses 11 through 12. We're going to see the revelation, verses 13 through 15. And then number three, we'll see the response, verses 16 and 17. So the setting, 11 and 12, the revelation, 13 and 15, and then the response, 16 and 17. 
So let's take a look at this first one. This is the setting, verses 11 through 12. This is the scene that we encounter. And so notice again, if you would please, verse 11, he states, and soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, Nain was a city about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum, which is that place that we were last time with the Roman centurion. And so it would have been about a one day's walk, one day's journey. It's about six miles southeast of Nazareth and about three miles west of Endor. You might remember that place from 1 Samuel where Saul seeks to summon the spirit of Samuel when he visits the witch of Endor. And so all three of these places are in a region known as the Galilee. They form sort of a triangle, which is the place that we've been so far in Luke. This is where Jesus has been ministering. And so Nain was nothing more than a simple little village nestled in the foot of a series of mountains called Little Hermon and sits on top of a hill that is called Mora, which is near the valley of Jezreel. In fact, it's on the other side of this little hill where there's a place called Shunem. And Shunem is where Elisha met the Shunemite woman and raised her son from the dead. And so it's just this little nothing town, this little village It's tucked away in a valley under the shadow of a mountain, sitting on top of a little hill. And so it's not really a city. In fact, it's a place that is still present today, and it's actually still called Nain. You can book a hotel there. And so it's just a small village, only about a couple hundred people. It was a village off the beaten path at the time, not really a destination, not really a place to visit just an isolated, secluded town that would have been somewhat of a challenge to even get to. And so it wasn't a place for which anyone would have reason to visit. And so what I want you to notice is that in verse 11, it says that soon afterwards, that is after this account of healing the slave of the centurion, he went to this city. In other words, it's described here as a very intentional decision. He would have no reason at all to go out of his way to wander to this village. And so the point to understand is that whatever Jesus is about to do, this is an issue of his own providence. That is to say that this is a very intentional effort of Jesus and because he wants to make some things known. This is not Jesus just happening to come across this little town in his travels or just happening to enter at the time of this funeral and just happening to randomly come across this procession. Rather, this is an issue of tremendous providence. This is an issue of Jesus knowing exactly what is happening. He has intentionality. He has purpose. And so he comes to this village when he does and for purposes that are bound up within his own sovereign person. And notice the text states that he is with his disciples and with a very large crowd. In other words, he's about to do what he's about to do, but for some very public reasons. In fact, if you were one of these disciples or one in this crowd who is following him, you might be wondering as to what in the world he is up to. Now, you've seen him do some extraordinary things so far, and so you don't want to miss the show. And so you're willing to follow this sea of humanity through little Herman. And so you wind through these mountains, again, this geography known as little Herman. And so you go up and down these hills. You have no idea where you're going or why Jesus is going there, but it's all on a seemingly intentional trajectory. And then all of a sudden you end up at this nothing little town. And so understand, again, this is not happenstance. Rather, Jesus is still the sovereign Lord of the universe and works all things after the counsel of his will. And so Jesus here bringing about very natural circumstances brings them about for a very specific purpose. And we'll see that down in verses 16 and 17. You'll notice that he does it for his glory and for the purposes of making himself known. In other words, this is a moment of intentional providence and through which 
Jesus is about to reveal some very important truth. In fact, that is why he does anything that he does. Jesus does all that he does for the purpose of his own name, for the purpose of bringing glory to his father's name, and specifically by making himself known and therefore causing people to recognize who he truly is. And so he is on a mission to reveal himself as God. And so since God has the ability to raise people from the dead, and he is the only one who has the ability to raise people from the dead, that is exactly what Luke wants you to understand through this particular record. He's not a mere teacher. He is not, again, a mere worker of miracles. He is not simply a Jewish rabbi or a clever traveling preacher. Rather, he is the sovereign God of the universe who orchestrates all things after the counsel of his will and in his timing and for the purpose of glorifying his name. And so here in verses one and two, we see the inescapable providence of Jesus And again, what is significant about that? Well, it shows that he is God. I heard a man once say that a miracle is God simply suspending the natural order and natural laws to bring about his purposes. But providence is God orchestrating the natural order and natural laws to bring about his purposes. And so if you think about it, providence, at least at a conceptual level, is far more difficult to understand, I think, than a miracle. Again, a miracle is simply breaking the natural order. People say miracles are impossible. Well, of course they are. They're impossible if you're trying to explain a miracle through natural or possible process. But if a miracle, by definition, is the breaking or suspending of natural process, then it's very simple to understand. It is why you can't prove a miracle through natural evidence or natural reason. It is the very breaking of that which is natural. But providence, on the other hand, is orchestrating a million different natural details that are happening independent of each other, but so that at the exact right time, they all come together to bring about a singular purpose. It is God superintending his control over all human action and events, but to effect a predetermined purpose. And so the complexity of that is a staggering thought. He is aware of the details. He is in the details. He is working and orchestrating the details. And so that nothing that happens happens apart from his predetermined purposes. And his predetermined purposes always come about every single time. And because that is what it means to be God. And this is happening all the time. Every microsecond, without fail, without exception, with every situation, every event, and in every circumstance. And so God is sovereignly orchestrating every micro detail of the universe from the spinning of massive planets to sparrows falling to the ground, Matthew chapter six. He knows it, he orders it, he sustains it, he controls it, and he does it all for the singular glory and revelation of his name alone. Proverbs 16 and verse 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs the steps. So you can make all the plans that your heart desires, but in the end, God sovereignly determines the outcome. Proverbs 16, the lot or the die is cast into the lap, but every, hear that, every decision is of the Lord So you can even do something like roll the dice, but even what those dice land upon, God has sovereignly determined. Amos chapter three in verse six, if there is a calamity, term ra'ah, literally evil, if there is a calamity in a city, has not the Lord done it? So not even a calamitous evil like, tsunamis, if it's natural, or genocide, if it's unnatural. 
None of that happens unless God has decreed it in his providence and to effect his purpose. That is the sovereign providence of God. That is his sovereign will and ability to bring all natural events together in his timing. He does it by his power and for his predetermined purpose. And so this is an account in which we see divine purpose. There is no unplanned event in the ministry of Jesus. He has no contingency. There is no plan B. There are no surprises to him. He does not improvise. Rather, everything in the plan of God is always fixed and forever settled, and so it's unchanging, and it is always brought to pass. And that is true for your life as well. You are merely another part of his creation. And so to you, things might appear at times to be more like chaos and random events just sort of piling together. You might even believe in something called luck, But that is an unbiblical category, and because everything that happens to you in every moment of every day, God possesses in his sovereign, providential control. He holds your life in his hands. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, it says that he holds together your life and breath and all things and has determined the boundaries even of your habitation. And so you live when you live, you live where you live, and you live how you live by his design. It is by his determination and it is by his pleasure. And so your life and the events of your life are no mistake. In fact, you are here this morning by no coincidence. You ate what you ate, you wore what you wore, and you sit where you sit by his decree. And what's so important, I think, to understand about that is that all of it is being orchestrated and carried along for a predetermined purpose. So you might not know why good things or bad things happen to you. It might not make sense. You might not know ever, ever know why, or you might never be able to figure it out. But what you can know is that God is always in it. He is aware, and because he has orchestrated it, He is that divine author of life. And we see this all throughout the scriptures, and so I don't have the time to do a survey on the doctrine of God's providence for you, but that is exactly what we see happening here this morning in this passage. In fact, notice verse two. He states, now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. Again, do you think that that is just a random coincidence? This is a secluded, obscure Nothing little village in the middle of a valley. And he is intimately aware that this massive crowd is following him. In fact, perhaps more important to him, he is aware that his 12 disciples are with him and can now see him act and speak. Verse 11. And so as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. Again, that is an important detail. Jesus is set on doing this publicly. He wants to reveal something. He wants to make something known about him. And so he makes certain that not only are his disciples with him, not only is a large crowd following him, but there is also now a sizable crowd already present at this funeral. And so understand the setting. Notice he's approaching here the city gate, which, by the way, is not some kind of reference to fortification. Rather, a gate was often used to simply mark boundaries. It typically indicated where a village began and where a village ended. And so often the gate was at the head of a main street, and so it was more of a symbolic gate. It's where socialization took place. It's where the elders of the city would often sit and adjudicate on certain issues. And so when a dead person was being buried in Jewish society, they were always to be carried through this gate and then buried outside of city limits. They were to remove the unclean reality to somewhere outside of their dwelling. 
And so again, Jesus approaches this gate and nobody knows why he's going there and yet he is. And so it's all planned, all timed perfectly. In fact, this man would have just died earlier this day. They always buried their dead on the same day in the evening. And because remember, this is not a time or a place in which you would embalm the dead. And so when a person died, they proceeded with a viewing and a subsequent funeral procession, but in tremendous haste. There was no draining of the body. There was no way to preserve the corpse. And so the family had to say their goodbyes and they had to arrange a funeral in very short order. And so in Jewish culture, they would lay the body on some kind of board to be carried to the grave. They would typically recite the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter six. They would have at least two flute players who would play in dissonant discord to represent pain and the sorrow of loss. There would be professional wailers that would come out, which was actually a profession in this day. They'd hire these women to weep and to wail very loudly. And so it was a sad, but also very dramatic occasion. In fact, as I was working through this text, I had some very vivid memories that I was seeing because I experienced a funeral like this. When I was teaching in Serbia some years ago, one of the students' mothers had died. And so the entire school canceled class for that day. And we all drove out of the major city to this little obscure village tucked away in the mountains of Serbia. And I witnessed what I have to imagine was something very similar to this text. It was just this tiny little village far out in the slopes. And so this man's mother had died that day. And so we had to make haste to get there. Her body, I remember, was put into this cheap wooden box that you could tell had literally just been hammered together. They placed a sort of transparent laced cloth over her body The entire village came out and viewed the body. There were professional mourners who were weeping and wailing. Again, it was very loud, very dramatic, something very different than our sort of quiet, more somber funerals that we have in our culture. And then we proceeded to walk in this very long line with the entire village to the grave spot. And it was technically a cemetery, I guess, but it was just a random spot on the side of this little hill that was just a little ways out from the main limits of the village. They had two men literally dig a hole in front of us with some shovels as we stood on the side of this mountain. They put some ropes under the box so they could lower it in. They pulled out the ropes and began to throw dirt on this person. And I remember thinking in that moment as I just saw a human body that just had air in its lungs just a few hours earlier, now being buried in a box under dirt. I remembered thinking to myself in a very emotional way in that moment as to how much I hated sin. There was a person who bore the image of the eternal maker of the universe just a few hours ago but now completely undignified in the ground. And I remember to this day uttering the statement under my breath that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I have been to many funerals in my life. I've even done quite a few funerals, but for some reason, this one, for lack of a better phrase, got me. And I think perhaps because it was not all prettied up, It was raw, it was ugly. It was a completely undoctored death. As I saw this young man weeping over the small, frail, shriveled body of this woman who no doubt nursed him, it struck me that God had never intended for a human body to ever be put into the ground. And yet because of sin, from dust we came and to dust we shall return. And so this is the scene. 
This is the scene, and what makes this all the more difficult is that notice she was also a widow. And so not only has she already buried her husband, but she's now about to bury her only son, which in this culture would have been devastating because it would have meant the veritable end of the family line. And in an honor and shame culture, which is what this was, that is a big deal. Perhaps God was bringing their line to an end because of some shameful or sinful reason, or so they would have thought. And so this is the setting. This is the scene that Jesus encounters. And he has determined to use the death of this widow's son for a divine purpose. And so in verses 13 and 15, we then come to the revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus' divinity. We see him demonstrate divine power. Notice verse 13, he states, and when the Lord saw her, that is an intentional identity that Luke uses. But when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. And he said to her, do not weep. Now, first of all, who in their right mind is going to interrupt a funeral and literally command a widow and mother of a dead son to weep no more? And so make no mistake, he would have been interrupting this entire process. In fact, we see that in that Luke records here that the bearers came to a halt, verse 14. And so this is brazen. This is far more than a mere social faux pas. And because remember, especially because Jesus is an outsider. This is a village in which everyone would have known everyone. And so to have this random man along with his massive entourage from the city come crashing in on your funeral for your dead son and to now tell you to cease from your rightful weeping, that is not a good idea. In fact, that is a deeply unsympathetic act. And yet notice, it is the deep compassion of Jesus that moves him to do this. Which, of course, shows us here that humanity of Jesus. And why, by the way, that we can believe, therefore, that statement in the book of Hebrews that says we have a sympathetic high priest. He is not some removed, distant deity. Rather, he understands in very intimate terms the nature of human sorrow He understands grief. He understands pain. He understands sorrow and the experience of loss in his own flesh. And so while he is fully and 100% God in that great mystery known as the hypostatic union, he is also 100% man. And so he can therefore sympathize with you in your times of greatest distress He understands your pain. He understands your emotion. He understands loss of the deepest kind. And so here we see the compassion of our sovereign Lord toward his grieving creation. And this is what moves him. This is what causes him to act. In fact, it's the term splonk nidzamai. It's a term which speaks of the gut. We often talk about the heart in our culture as that control factory for our emotions, but in Jewish culture, they referred to the stomach. They referred to the bowels. It's the idea that Jesus has moved from a place of very deep compassion and grief. This was an emotional response. This was a rightful emotional response. And because no doubt he hates what he sees, I think perhaps he too was thinking that this is not the way it's supposed to be. A mother should not have to bury anyone, let alone her own son, the one whom she carried and birthed and nursed. And so Jesus moved with compassion, stops his woman and commands her to cease from weeping. And so verse 14, notice, Luke records that he comes up and touches the coffin, which, again, was just a piece of wood. It was more like a stretcher. And understand that this, again, is another socially forbidden action. You don't touch dead bodies, nor their stretchers in Jewish law. That is what makes you ritually unclean. 
And yet similar to when he touched the leper, you'll have to think back, but Jesus stands outside of uncleanness. He is in fact what makes uncleanness clean again. And the reason for that is because notice in the moment that he touches this stretcher, he simultaneously gives the command of his word. And so as he touches the unclean essence, and in that moment, he is not actually touching one who is dead, but one who is living. And so in verse 15, Luke says that the dead man sat up and began to speak. This was immediate. This was not some kind of medicinal process. This was creating life from nothing. This was commanding life to be through the power of his Word, which should immediately bring your mind to Genesis chapter one, where God speaks creation into being. God does not labor through process. He speaks. There's power in his word. And what's interesting is that unlike the previous story with the centurion notice, there is zero mention anywhere of faith. He did not heal because of the dead person's faith. He did not heal because of the mother's faith. He did not heal because of any disciple's faith. Rather, this man was dead, which means there was zero hope. There was no prayer. There was no wishful thinking that could reverse this death. And so therefore, there was no faith to be exercised. And so in all those other encounters with the sick, there was at least some kind of hope and because they weren't yet dead. But this was death. This was the veritable cessation of hope. And yet at the command of Jesus' mere word, which again is what contained the power, this man lives. And so Jesus gives him back to his mother, There was restoration. There was life. Which, of course, then leads to this response, verses 16 and 17. He states, notice verse 15, and fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. And so this is where his popularity now just explodes all the more. And so notice his fame now spreads to Judea and in all the surrounding districts. Now, remember, he could have just gotten here a little bit earlier this day and made this a private healing with the mother, right? And especially if his goal was merely to heal and show love and compassion to this woman, but he is compelled to make this a public spectacle. That is to say, he wants a public declaration of who he is and what he has done. And because what drives him is the revelation of who he is. In fact, this is why he has come. He has come to bring salvation to a sinful world, but for the purpose of glorifying his own name, In fact, the term fear here was an Old Testament expression that spoke of reverence and worship. And especially at the recognition of of God's own presence, it's how Israel, in fact, responded at the foot of Mount Sinai when God appears and the ground begins to quake. The text states that they were struck with fear. That at the presence of God, he is not one to be trifled with. He is one who possesses omnipotent power And that he does what he does for the glory of his name alone. And so at the sight of this dead man sitting up and talking, fear is what strikes these people. And notice they say that he is a prophet. That a prophet has arisen among us. I told you that this was only on the other side of the hill in which the prophet Elisha raised a dead boy as well and gave him back to his mother. There's actually a great parallel between these two accounts, which is perhaps why Jesus treks out to this region. And so this was an area in which this kind of thing happened before. And so they recognized that Jesus was a prophet, perhaps even in succession with Elisha, that in some form God was with him. 
Now, they didn't recognize him to be the son of God. They didn't yet see him as that promised Messiah. In fact, the term here for visit is the term episkeptomai. It's the term that we've seen already. It's used to speak of a person visiting the sick. It's, in fact, a medical term. And so Luke, being the physician that he is, invokes this term often. And so he uses it all throughout the gospel to say that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, has visited his people. That he has visited these ones who need a healing, of course, talking about sin and the fact that our souls need to be restored by that great physician of the soul. In fact, in chapter 19 and verse 44, Luke records that the nation of Israel has missed this visitation that Jesus has come, that he has revealed himself, and yet they have rejected him. But in Jesus coming to them here, they understand that in some form, God has visited them. And so this is an account in which Luke is revealing that Jesus does what he does for his glory. In fact, as you can imagine, this man would eventually have to die again, right? And so this is not about him. And so the point of the healings and the miracles is never merely for the one who is sick. Rather, the point was always to demonstrate to the people who he was and to therefore receive to himself glory. And so again, what moves him here to do what he does is not merely his compassion for the sick. It is not merely his love and tenderheartedness toward the sinner, but it is in the first instance, his desire to receive to himself worshipers. That is why God in Jesus Christ has visited us. In fact, think about that with respect to your own life. Why has God saved you ultimately? Why has God visited you in the message of the gospel? Why has God spoken life into your dead heart and caused you to believe? In fact, what I love about this story is that it shows the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation. Again, there was no faith exercise. This man was utterly dead. He did nothing for Jesus to come to him. And yet in verse 14, it says that Jesus came to him. It's, it's the word pros erikomai. Literally, Jesus moved close to him. It's a wonderful image. He came to him. He went a very great distance to come to him. And in his sovereign mercy speaks into him life. This was not owed. This was not deserved. Rather, from the centrality of his own sovereign compassion, he creates life from death. And so it is a very provocative illustration as to the nature of your salvation. That there was a day in which God said to you, if you're a Christian here this morning and your heart has been changed, there's a day in which God said to you, you shall live. And so he said, live. You couldn't resist it. You couldn't fight it. You did nothing to receive it. Rather, he orchestrated certain events and so that in his divine providence, you would hear the message of the gospel and so your dead heart shot up. And you were given life. And since that day, if you're truly a believer, you have not stopped talking about the gospel. And so you rose up and started talking, just as this man did. Wouldn't you like to know what he said? How bizarre would this be? But in a sort of symbolic way, the point is that the living sinner now speaks. Concept I wish I had time to explore regarding the nature of what marks true saving faith. But God travels a distance takes on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, but to give life to the sinner. And again, why? Why did this happen to you? Well, it was not merely because Jesus had compassion on you, though it is not less than that. But in an ultimate sense, God saved you for himself. He saved you for his own glory. And because he is a very, hear this, he is a very God-centered God. 
fact, you're going to hear this again next week, Lord willing, at our Easter service when we work through the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But you might remember there that he tells Martha that this sickness, talking about Lazarus dying, but this sickness is not to end in death, but in glory. That is a very strange statement. And because you think that he would say something like, this sickness is not to end in death, but in life or healing or health. But he says, it's not to end in death, but in glory. And so what does he do? Well, after hearing that Lazarus, his dear friend, is about to die, he intentionally waits four more days. And to make certain that Lazarus would be good and dead. And why? Well, so that he could perform the miracle. So that he could put on display that he is God. That he is who he said he is. And to receive, therefore, to his name, glory and worship. In other words, again, the ultimate motivation for why he has come and why he's rescued the sinner so that he might bring to his own name worship. We have to dispense with such a man-centered gospel. And so hear me when I say that Jesus does not save you merely to save you. That is not the point. Rather, he saves you to glorify his name. He saves you so that he, you might praise and worship him for eternity. And so in a small way, we see that this is the response. This is the response of these many people who witnessed such power. And so let me bring this to a close by just pointing out a couple things for you. First of all, we're once again confronted with that question as we are every single time of, so who do you understand Jesus to be? That is the compelling question of every single account in the gospel of Luke, which is why I keep asking it. That is why he writes. That is the question he wants you to answer. Who do you understand him to be? Is he just a mere prophet as these people saw? Is he just a good teacher? Is he just an option among many? Or does the fact that he creates life with his mere word, something, by the way, which Elisha couldn't do, because that is only something that God can do, but does the fact that he creates life with his word cause you to confess him as Lord? Verse 13. And will you follow him as Lord? Which is what he desired of these disciples. I suppose it's easy to confess him as Lord and intellectually assent to the fact that he is the son of God in some vague spiritual kind of way. And so you are more than happy, I am certain, to take his salvation. But does that move you to now also obey him as Lord? Something that was his burden the end of chapter six, that he cannot merely be seen as some kind of ticket into heaven where you think that a simple profession of him as Lord is some kind of fire insurance. And so you can just keep living how you want. Rather, do you also follow him now with your entire being, heart, soul, mind, and strength? that you submit every aspect of your life under his lordship and because you understand that you are no longer your own, but you are owned by him. That he has purchased you, that he has redeemed you for himself. So who do you understand him to be? That is the question. But then second, and this is the main point of the passage, but going back to my introduction, this is a passage that demonstrates that there is only one reality in the universe that possesses the power to defeat your great enemy. This is a passage that declares the power of Jesus Christ over the power of death. The fact is that you and I have only one conclusion to life, right? 
Again, for some of you, that conclusion is going to be sooner than it is for others of you, but regardless of when it is, and especially because, again, youth is no guarantee of old age, and tomorrow has not been promised to any of us, but regardless of when it is, what it is, is the same for all of us. There will be a day in which you will take your final breath. And so the question is, will you take it alive to the hope that Jesus is the Christ? The one who has defeated death and overcome death, the one, as we'll celebrate next week, the grave could not hold? Or will you take that final breath still dead in your sins? Will you take it as one who kept on assuming that tomorrow is the day that you'll wrestle with Jesus? I tell you the truth that none of us know when that day of death has been appointed for us. And so this is not something for which you ought to wrestle with tomorrow. Rather, the call of the gospel is always today. Today is the day, as the writer of the Hebrews writes, that if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts as the Hebrews did of old. Do not assume you have tomorrow. Do not assume you have this afternoon. And so at the hearing of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in flesh, that he came and lived a perfect life in your place as your substitute, that he went to the cross to take on that full judicial wrath of a righteously holy judge, namely the Father, for the purpose of bearing your guilt and again in your place, and that after that death he was buried in a tomb, And then three days later, he burst forth from the grave and rose again. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where the scriptures state that he is right now sitting, awaiting that day in which he will come back to judge both the living and the dead. And so the question for you this morning is, having now just heard that message, will you still presume upon his grace? And assume that he will continue to sustain your breath that you do not deserve. Or will you trust the promise that in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, your sins can be forgiven, that Satan has been defeated, and that he has put to death, death. And then will you follow him? You lay down your life fully unto the lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you say no, you might be able to suppress the truth that you're being perpetually stalked by those enemies. But hear me, you will never escape them. There is only one way of escape, and it is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ applied to your account. And so on that day of judgment, you will stand before your maker and give an account. And you will either be able to say that Jesus Christ is your righteousness, or you will be forced to confess that you have no righteousness. And then at that confession, the just judge of the universe in that moment will have no choice but to execute justice. The time of grace will be no more. You will be ushered over to the eternal pit, a pit in which eternal death abides, and you will be consigned to that righteous penalty. And that is the message of this passage. As long as you have breath in your lungs, hear this, you still live in the time of grace. You still have that opportunity to run to Christ as your salvation. You have that opportunity to cast your anxieties and your fears and your hopes upon him. For as this passage depicts, he is a compassionate and merciful savior. And one who treks through the valley to seek out the sinner. Luke has a special emphasis on the outcast. We saw that salvation visited the house of the Gentile, that Roman centurion. And so here's a story in which salvation goes to the foothills. 
goes to a place that is far and remote and seems like it has no hope. And so this is declaring that you are never, ever too far out of reach. You are never too far gone or too sinful. But I do tell you that you are now 60 minutes closer to that day. And so time is exceedingly short. Time is urgent. It is not in your favor. And so the call of this passage and the call of the gospel is that you would do well to consider that statement of Joshua in Joshua chapter 24 when he says, choose today whom you will serve. For tomorrow has not been promised to you. So will you serve Jesus Christ in the hope of heaven? Or will you serve sin, Satan, death, and self? That is the question, and that is of eternal significance. Let's pray. And so, Father, I do ask that this would happen. I do pray for all in this room that we might be able to say that we know and believe and most certainly love the gospel of your Son. My hope and my prayer is that this word which you've given to us in your providence this morning might not leave us unreflective, but that it might cause us by the power of your spirit to better understand the vastness of your love. That we'd understand in a fuller way your compassion and grace toward the sinner. For you know that there's nothing that we could do and so you did it for us. And the sending forth of your son to give life to that which was dead. I pray for all here this morning that they might see just a little bit more the glorious reality of what it means that you, the God of all creation, has visited us. That you sent forth your son to take on flesh, to take on the weakness of what it means to be man. But so that you might enter this world and rescue it from the clutches of its own self-destruction. So may we come. May we bow down at the foot of your cross. May we find comfort in knowing that you are a God who loves to save sinners. And so I do ask that you would put this truth within us, that you would seal it within our hearts so that we might have a hope and that we might find a true rest by faith in you and you alone. And so I do ask these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.